I'm going to preach this morning from Acts chapter 24, and um, this has already been said, but I will say again, today we have four more messages of Acts today, and three more that Pastor Peter will come back and preach. Uh, For some of you, this is very good news. Some of you don't know why the ones who this is good news for, so happy. Um, Well, I thought about it this morning. Matt and Lyra are here. Matt and Lyra Stevens are here. They're in town. They're in town, and we're glad they're here. But I thought about this. We've had folks um, start new lives at New Community. I think I married Matt and Lyra, and we started Acts the same year. They went away to Florida. Lyra is pregnant, and they're about to have a baby, and we're still studying the book of Acts. (laughs) Something just, you know, it's great, and something's wrong with that picture, I tell you. Uh, No, no, it's very good. We're in Acts. We're glad to be in Acts, and I'm glad to lead through another chapter, uh, another chapter of uh, this important historical book of the Bible. We're not going to cover all the verses that I'm supposed to cover, but uh, we're going to act like we do so that next week when Pastor Peter comes and picks it up, you, you know, you haven't missed a beat. So I'll tell you now, the, the passage I'm covering is Acts 24 and 22 through 25 and 22, okay? So if you have your Bibles, open them up, uh, flip a page or two and act like you've read that whole thing. Uh, if not, we're, gonna, we're, we're actually going to read the text because I do want to read the entire passage. And we're going to go through it in a particular way this morning um, so that uh, I have you home at least by dinner time. Uh, Acts 24 and 22. Uh, This is the scene, and Pastor David preached last week, where Paul is going through his first real trial in the book of Acts. This is his first legal proceeding. Every other trial before now has been um, a faux trial, a phony trial. It hasn't been quite a trial. And we're picking up midway uh, when Paul has already given his defense. There have already been witnesses against him. The prosecution has already rested, if I can use that term, a little slippery. And then we come to verse 22 in, in chapter 24. At that point, and I'm reading, and this is a different translation from what you have, but I'll read what's in front of me. At that point, follow along, uh, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and to allow his friends to visit him and to take care of his needs. A few days later, Felix Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him. So he sent for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived, Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he would himself be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took his seat in court and ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and many made serious accusations they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges. 
I am not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government, he said. This is Paul really repeating what he's already repeated in 24 when he starts his defense. He's saying the same thing. If I have done anything, uh, this is, uh, this is verse, uh, ver- verse, let's go to verse 9. Then Festus, wanting to please the temple, asked him, Are you willing to go uh, to, to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court. So I ought to be tried here. You know very well, I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, Very well, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Think of an appellate court, if I can put it in those terms. Think of the highest level that one could appeal for one's freedom, for one's case to be heard. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa arrived and his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There is a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and Paul brought, uh, and ordered Paul brought in. But the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. I I, I wanted to push him to a place where they were more familiar with these religious matters. But Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. I'd like to hear the man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. There are times in scripture where um, you, if you're familiar with the scope of the Bible and what's in the Bible, you see these patterns, the same sorts of things reintroducing themselves. One of the patterns that we see in scripture is um, when in the Old Testament, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. They have been freed from Egyptian oppression, freed from bondage. Moses uh, says to Pharaoh that we are going into the wilderness to worship. And so the children of Israel uh, exit Egypt by God's power, uh, miraculous power, exit into Egypt. They go into the desert, into the wilderness, and a pattern develops where for 40 years, so says scripture, that people of Israel are seeing the same markers, going through the same sins, seeing the same artifacts in the desert, seeing the same places, experiencing the same thirsts. And for 40 years, that pattern stays in place. Another pattern in the Old Testament is in the book of Judges. And some of you have read the book of Judges. And so you, you may be familiar with when Israel is, is um, um, see, they're, they're without a king, without a monarch. They're sort of in between leadership styles. And they are in this habit of forsaking God and setting up idols. And, and when they forsake God, God delivers them to the gods that they've wanted to serve. So God stands back and says, you want gods that you worship? have the gods that you worship and what happens is they are taken by their enemies they're taken by the Canaanites they're taken by the Jebusites they're taken by all of these sites and then they get oppressed again and 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 they pray to God they say God okay we'll repent we'll turn back to you and the pattern is that after they walk away from God they're oppressed by their enemies they turn back to God and God delivers them through the able execution of a judge who leads them out of idolatry and back 
to their covenant with God. And in the book of Judges, we see the pattern. One time, two times, three times, over and over, where Israel leaves God, falls into the oppressive hands of their enemies, turns back to God because of that oppression, and God delivers them through the ministry of a judge. That's another pattern that we see in scripture. A third pattern, if there is, is the overall sort of ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets, in a very cyclic way, are reminding the people of God in every Old Testament book what the covenant that they have with God is. And the prophets are preaching not a new message. They are preaching the same message that Israel is familiar with, the same message that they've heard before, but they've walked away from, that they have systematically walked away from God, disobeyed God, and each time God raises up a voice, raises up a preacher and a prophet to say, hey, this is the covenant that you signed your life to. And over and over again, Israel as a people comes back to God, hears God, walks away from God, comes back to God, hears God's voice through the prophets, comes back to God, comes back to God, walks away from God. That's a third pattern we see in scripture. And when we come to the New Testament, we see a similar pattern in the book of Acts. We see a pattern where the Apostle Paul, after we've seen the preaching ministry of Peter and after James has been highlighted in the early part of Acts, we see Luke recording in the majority part of this historical book, Paul, a chief and primary promoter of the gospel, falling into situations where he's called upon to talk about what he believes. He goes from synagogue to the public square. He goes from the city hall and municipal buildings, as it were, to the synagogues and churches and Sanhedrin councils. And over and over again, his pattern is to say the same things. And we hear him again and again preaching the same message. And when we come to Acts 24, this is the same thing we see. He is sitting in a court. Felix, the governor, the procurator, is holding the court, listening to the testimony. And Felix is supposed to decide the case. He's the governor. He's the judge. He's the jury. The prosecution has laid out its evidence, if you can call it that, against Paul. There have been witnesses called. There really isn't evidence. And Paul sets his defense and he talks about what really isn't a legal matter at all. And that's why later on you heard Festus, the second governor, coming back to say, I didn't see any of the case that I thought I would see. I was expecting to hear something illegal. I was expecting to hear something uncivil. I was expecting to hear something against the Roman state, but all I heard was something religious about a dead man rising from the dead. And Paul is before Felix. Say the word, say Felix. Felix is the Roman governor. He is a politician. And Felix, if, if, if Josephus and Luke and some of the other historians that we draw upon for this kind of research are right, Felix is a lying politician. And I'll say, you know, we, we're Christians. We don't believe that all politicians are always liars. But Felix, in this case, is, is a liar. And, and, and I'll tell you how we know he is a liar. If you ever have a governor, a politician, a political leader who tells you, regardless of his constituency, he will do the right thing, you know one of two things about that politician. You know, one, that that politician doesn't share your understanding of what the right thing is. You know, either that or you know uh, that the politician is only interested in one term in office. Or thirdly, you know that that politician is a liar because all political leaders are concerned about their constituency. The people who vote them in office. And Felix is no different in his Roman way. He is interested in what the Jews are saying about them. Uh, him. He is, they are part of his constituency. He is in between. Uh, he, he's a very connected politician. His wife, Drusilla, is the daughter of, of King Herod. Uh, the earlier King Herod Agrippa, who was in Acts earlier. And she is the sister of King Agrippa, who comes later on in Acts. 
sex. And so he's married to a woman who is phenomenally connected and he is sitting in the governor's seat, the seat of power, the seat of authority. And he has between him family responsibilities and wanting to be the good politician because of who his wife is, who her people are. And then he sees these Jews who can be rabble rousers of sorts in his own mind. And so he's looking at Paul and looking at his reality, looking at his constituency, and he's trying to please everybody. And what happens is Felix, and he has some character issues that we'll get into in a moment, but Felix delays the decision that he is supposed to make for Paul. He only has two years. He can only hold Paul for two years. And he exhausts the two years, Luke says in our text. He sends Paul back to confinement. Paul is, is not in the common jail. He is, he's not quite in house arrest. He's not in the common jail, but he has some liberties. He gets to see his friends. They get to visit him on a great schedule. They get to meet some of his needs and bring him some things that make him a bit more comfortable. But, but Felix doesn't do what he is supposed to do. And Paul, uh, who, who really is the focus of my thinking this morning, is in between his experience and knowing what he has done and what he hasn't done and looking at the Roman governor who has the power to release him. And he's in the middle, stuck and paralyzed and waiting on God to use Felix to release him. Some of you this morning may feel like Paul and you're not in jail, you're not in court, you're in church, you're on Logan Boulevard this morning, but you can appreciate what it means, what it feels like to be stuck between a person who has power to, to, to make something happen for you. You can, you can appreciate what it means to be stuck between your experience and where you believe God to be taking you. You have a dream drilling in, echoing in your heart. You are moving on to Rome. You are moving on to Rome. And yet you're stuck in court. You're stuck in prison. You're stuck for two years only with reminder of what God said. And you're wondering when God will bring to pass for you what you heard. And I think that Paul says some things in his defense that that not only sets the course for everything we read in our text, Paul says some things that not only uh, uh, frightens Felix and, and, and eventually gets him before Festus and then eventually gets him before Agrippa, but Paul says some things that might anchor us if we're in between where God has called us to go and where we are. Paul, in his defense, handles this situation, this predicament, by telling a story. And he tells the same story, as I said, that he has always told. It is not a new story. It is the the common story. So in some ways, we're getting ready to go again into this repetitious message about Jesus. And every time that Paul talks about Jesus in Acts, we get to see him nuance here and there. We get to see him slightly modify, but his anchor and his center is the gospel. His anchor and his center is the person of Jesus and what Jesus has done and how Jesus has transformed him. And he uses that anchor and he he modifies ever so slightly based upon who his listeners are. And I think that in this chapter, we get to see Paul dance between uh, the religious court, the Sanhedrin council, uh, to be accused falsely by them, to be brought from the religious arena into the civil arena where all of the power and all of the decisions are. And so Paul moves us on the one hand from the theological realm where the spiritual leaders are and the religious leaders are all the way through where the common municipal data life and the decisions are made by powerful others and his message from one place to the other is not different it is the same and I want to take you to how he summarizes the gospel and then I'll sit down in Acts 24 and 14 right before we picked up our text he says but I admit this is his defense I follow the way which they call a cult 
He has been accused of being an enemy of the state. He has been accused of being an agitator. He has been accused of being an irritant for the Romans. And, and, and he has been accused of being a cult leader. And so here is Paul dealing with the accusations. I admit that I follow the way. They call it a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors. And I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have. That he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. And when Paul goes through this defense, when he starts to settle down on the gospel, Felix gets fearful and he sends Paul away. I can imagine that at first he's bored by this. This is not a legal matter. This is something for church people, for Jewish people, for people who are fanatics about things that they cannot see. I can imagine Felix is bored, but something about listening to him grips his heart and he's sitting I think on the edge of his seat somewhere between wanting to know and being too fearful to know and he sends Paul away and he misunderstands the gospel he misunderstands faith and he says when it's convenient for me I'll call you back as if what God has to say to you is ever convenient and for two years. Felix, the man in power. Felix, the man with gubernatorial might, brings Paul back to his wife looking for a convenient moment and never finding out that he has boxed himself into a heart and into a soul that cannot hear God. Paul summarizes his message. Luke, rather, summarizes Paul's message in Acts 24 and 25. He says the repetitious sermon is about three things. About righteousness, about self-control, about judgment. Say the word righteousness. Say the word self-control. Say judgment. Paul talks about these three things and these three things grip Felix's heart and they grip his heart so that he's paralyzed and he eventually leaves office, leaves his work for the next governor, Festus, who comes back and tries to do a little bit better. But we see Paul, an innocent man who is imprisoned with some liberties, if you can call them that, staying and waiting for somebody to make a decision to affirm what he already knows in his heart, that he's done no wrong. And I think that what anchors Paul is the thing that he preaches over and over again. And Luke says, it is a message about righteousness, about self-control, about judgment. It's the same message that he's been preaching. And I'll tell you, and this came up in membership class yesterday, that any communicator, especially any preacher, will tell you that it is counterproductive to preach and to teach and to say and to speak the same things. I mean, we don't want to lose our audiences. We want to capture you. We want, if we have to, to entertain you. We want to keep you somewhere on the edge of your seat, but not too far back. Because if you fall too far back, it means you're a little too relaxed. And so we'll grill it in so you can kind of lean in forward. We don't want to lose you so we definitely will not resort to the tactic of telling you what you already know because if we tell you what you already know, you will think you know where we're going and some of you think you know where I'm going so you've cut me out already and no preacher or communicator wants to do that. And yet Paul find something so essential, something so fundamental, something so precise about the message of the gospel that he does not resort to inventing something else. But he falls back on the same pattern of preaching. He falls back on the same points, if you can call them that. He falls back on the same rhetoric. He falls back on the same manuscript. He falls back on the same text. He falls back on the same transformation. He falls back on his same testimony. He falls back on his same interpretations. He falls back on the same Jesus. And Luke captures what Paul does in righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Now, now when, when, 
We talk about righteousness. Some translations call that justice. And, and when, when Paul talks about righteousness, he is, remember who his audience is. It's the politician. It's Felix. It's the governor. He's talking to him about right living, about the connections between what you believe and how you live, what you think about God or what you think you think about God and how you live your life. And so Paul is making a connection in the gospel message about how you think and how you live. Whether you're religious, in the religious sphere, Sanhedrin Council, he talks about righteousness, or for the political leader, he talks about righteousness. And our, 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 our Department of Compassion, Mercy and Justice, the Covenant Department, put out a paper recently that defines righteousness in this way. It talks about righteousness as the work of God confronting and overcoming evil and sin, both individually and systematically in our world. The work of God overcoming evil and sin. The work of God confronting evil and sin individually, systemically in our world. Righteousness, this paper says, and it is a faithful definition of scripture, righteousness is restoring God's right right purpose or righteous purpose and shalom for creation and the human family. Paul is talking about shalom. He's talking about a restoration of righteousness. This word justice that he uses in the court. This word righteousness that he uses in the midst of the political leader who is responsible for making a right decision in his life. He talks about righteousness in relation to Jesus and he knows that Felix is a liar. He knows that Felix is unfaithful to his wife. Paul is not sleeping under a rock. He knows who Drusilla is and he knows who Felix is. He knows that Felix can't be trusted. He sees that Felix is expecting him to give him money to be released. And Paul says to him that God is concerned about how you live. He tells this governor, who most people have called evil and sinister and spineless, he tells this political leader that if you want to know why I'm standing before you, I'm standing before you because I told the last audience the same thing I will tell you, and that is how you live your life matters. And Felix couldn't take it. He couldn't take it. So he gave Paul another chance. And he said, you know what? You come back later. You come back. You come back. In fact, me and my wife will come back, and we will see you, and I'll give you the chance to remember who I am. And week after week, month after month, Paul says the same thing. He tells Felix that God is working to change things and structures and foundations in his life so that God's plan can come to pass. That God is working to change things, structures, and foundations in what you represent. The Roman state that you promote. God is working to change that so that God's plan comes to pass. Paul doesn't lock Felix out. He knows who Felix is. He knows that Felix uh, is taught thinking about his own life. And here's the great thing about Paul when he preaches. And when you track his messages in Acts and when you look at his writings, he never talks about righteousness the way we think about righteousness. He always talks about righteousness through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so the language of righteousness and, and, and Luke's sort of capture and summary and sort of addition of Paul's message is not just righteousness. You live right and you do the the right things. But when Paul preaches about righteousness, he's preaching about a righteousness that is derived. He's preaching about a righteousness that comes from Jesus. He's preaching about a righteousness that comes from the man he knows as the son of God. And he is preaching not about the righteousness that Felix can, can get on his own, on his own strength and on his own wisdom. But he's preaching about a righteousness that comes from a suffering servant who gave power away and who died for his enemies because he loved them. And so when Paul says that the gospel is about righteousness to Felix, he's saying that it is about the righteousness that Jesus gives you, that Jesus imputes, that Jesus puts inside you. So that when we talk about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, it never starts with what you do. It always starts with what Jesus does. And still, Felix can't take it. Paul moves from righteousness 
to self-control. Y'all listening to me? Y'all not saying nothing. Are y'all listening to me? All right. It's okay. Y'all not listening. I had to talk longer. Y'all talk back to me. I think you're listening. See? Yeah. Thank you, Byron. Paul talks about righteousness, about self-control, about judgment. He talks about righteousness. He watches his listeners' eyes. He knows that Felix is about to get afraid and send him away again. And he says, well, I'll move to the second point in the message. I'll talk to you about self-control. I've tried to build a foundation. The righteousness that you get comes from Jesus Christ, Felix. You can submit your life to Jesus. You can have righteousness because of this Jesus. Well, that doesn't grab you. Let's talk about self-control. If you didn't like that, you're really not going to like this. Because self-control, when Paul talks about it, is a conversation about public character. And what Paul does, if he hasn't done it and talked about right, the righteousness of Christ, is he, he holds up a mirror, a verbal mirror to this political leader. And he says to him that what you do with what you know is either called self-control or carelessness. And he moves from a conversation about right thinking about God, which translates to right behavior, to this conversation about the internal life, the interior life. Throughout scripture, God is clear when it comes to self-indulgence, to, to, to hunger, to excess, especially when it comes to people who have power, people who have status, people who have position, ability. The Old Testament prophets, the writings of the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus bring before us a confrontation where our desires, what we want and what we seek, have to come to terms with what God wants. And so our desires, to some extent, uh, we're all like Felix in that uh, we are greedy. Now, Felix's issue, his interior life, is about greed. You look at his soul, and the, the images on his soul are about excess and getting and gaining and always having more. And your issue might not be greed, although some of you may sit and say, Felix and I are close cousins. But, but all of us have an interior issue. All of us have something inside that, that even if I look at you in your face for an hour, I can't see. Even if, you, even if you sit and talk to me for a long time, you will never hear me talk about it. All of us have at least one, maybe two, probably three interior issues. And one of Felix is greed. And the thing about Felix and greed is, and, and Paul is trying to drill this. Paul is trying, and I can imagine him dancing and prancing and trying and posturing for two years, trying to promote clear articulation of the gospel because he knows who this guy is. And I can imagine him sweating after each time saying, I didn't do it right. I didn't say it. I need another analogy. I need another approach. He's going to give me some more time. He's going to give me another opportunity to tell him this. And I've got to go at him in another way so he hears me well. And I can imagine Paul agonizing, thinking about this man's life, thinking about self-control, thinking about what it means for him to restrain himself and give himself over to God. I can imagine Paul saying, this man's greed is stopping faith. And that's exactly what greed does. Greed convinces you that you always need something else. And faith is the opposite of that. Faith is the, the small, simple trust in God that you have in God all you need. You know how greed is your issue? You know how to know it? It's if you're always looking for something else. It's if you're always grabbing for something else. If you're always waiting for the next thing, if you find your mind drifting off to something that is opposite from where you are, you're, you're going away from where God has placed you and you're losing the ability to trust in God and you don't even know it. And Felix is a character, a case study for us. He is a warning for us who, who are flirting with excess and greed to say, God has all you need. Now, I know that sounds... I know that sounds really basic. That could even sound trite to some of you. I mean, that could sound worthless. Like, I came to church to hear that God has all I need. What did the preacher say? The preacher said, God has all you need. But can you roll your eyes in your head just for a moment up to that thought? Can you, can you drift your thought? 
to the truth that if you're going to have faith, if you're going to be able to build anything called trust in God, it will be because you believe, maybe one step at a time, that everything you need, God has it. That the advancement that everybody tells us to go for is so unessential. That the drive and the ambition and the aspiration and the need to go and do and grab and gain and work and toil and become is so unnecessary. The thing about Acts is that it helps us to pause and to remember the fundamental thing called simple faith in God. Oh, now you've got to anchor that and you've got to make that live. You've got to make that breathe in your life. And and God knows what you need. And I'm not the fool to tell you that if you're hungry, uh, that you just, oh, God has, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand and distort. But I'm talking to you about the part of your soul that says to you, you don't have enough. You have to keep going. You have to keep trying. Because if there's anything that's going to make you worthy, it is what you get. It is where you go in life. And it's not the God who is behind you saying, come on back. I'm already more than enough. And Felix can't even hear the Holy Spirit because his heart is crowded out by greed. Dallas Willard says something that I think is helpful for us because it gets at when we start talking about what self-control is. And some folks say, well, well, you know, this gospel is by grace and uh, you can't earn grace. Uh, and that is so true. But Dallas Willard says something. He says, you cannot earn grace, um, but you can put effort into life. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that, oh, well, God does it all, that I have no part to play, that I have nothing to do, when really we have effort to put into what God calls us to. And so when Paul talks about self-control, he's pushing this envelope about faith to Felix. And later on in the, in the book of Galatians, how he talks about self-control here is how he explains what's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. How you think affects how you live. And in 5 and 22 of Galatians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross. And crucified them there. Paul says, since we are living in the spirit, let us follow the spirit's leading in every part of our lives. What does this mean? What is self-control, fruit of the spirit? What this means is we trust God. We live by the fruit of the spirit when we trust God. So if the fruit is that public character, if self-control is the public character of the gospel that that Paul is preaching, uh, it's a public lived confession so that when we talk about whether the fruit is in your life, we're talking about whether you have a public, uh, uh, a public character, a public trust in this God. In other words, I live this way because I trust God. It is the confession that I live this way because I trust God. I live with joy because I trust God for my ultimate meaning. Paul talks about joy. He talks about gentleness. I live gently because I trust that God has loved me unconditionally. Paul talks about forgiveness. I forgive because I trust that God has forgiven me. So that the fruit of the Spirit is an ex, uh, 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 an, an exploration of the trust of God. It is, a, it is a putting forward of a trust in God in a public way. And this governor in Acts dispenses with self-control. He says that he cannot trust this God. He cannot be public about righteousness or self-control. He cannot trust this God because he's afraid and his fear paralyzes him. 
doesn't bring him to a confession of faith. It doesn't bring him, as far as we know, to conversion. It doesn't bring him to a decision for Paul. And so Paul, like men over on 26 in California, like folks up in Joliet, like folks uh, in your lives and mine, are waiting for somebody to make a decision to affirm that what somebody said they did, they did not do. I thought about you, Adam, when I was preparing this message. I thought about you, Dan. I thought about you when I was reading this message and the work that you do. I thought about the attorneys and the translators and Michael Legal Aid. And I was wondering whether or not Paul could be useful for some of the men and women in Illinois who are waiting for some governor, waiting for some judge, waiting for some God to remind them that the label that is carried over you is not the label that I carry over you. That your rightness is because of who I am and what I have done. And your life, your self-control, your, your self-control is really controlling that. So if God says that you are righteous, self-control is you controlling that label. And you saying when something else tells you that you are evil or sinful, that self-control really is you pushing that out of your life. And saying, I have a self that God calls me that I will control. Well, that doesn't work. And the last thing Paul does in Felix's presence, and it gets him thrown to Festus. It gets him before Caesar as he talks about judgment. Righteousness. Self-control. Judgment. Judgment is an answer to things that have been said. Judgment is in God's eyes is the thing that God will say, the verdict that God will give after hearing what you say, after seeing what you live, after seeing what creation says and what creation does. Judgment is what God gets to say. Paul is preaching and he's saying to Felix who is a politician who is himself a judge who is withholding judgment that God has something to say about him and what he represents and, 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 and can I remind you this morning not only does God have a judgment for the overall macroscopic view of things and how God has created the world and all that it is and God is going to make right and speak righteousness for all that God has created but God is also going to judge you now um, from time to time we think about uh, morbid people maybe people like me and you've heard Pastor Pete he's a little morbid sometimes too and so you've heard folks say well you know when you die think about uh, what your family will say think about your funeral and think about what your friends will say about you how do you want to live your life think about what your co-workers will say if they eulogize you think about what people will say when they say after you're gone after you're dead after you've gone wherever dead people go what they say about you what will your wife What will your children, what will your cousins say about you? We've heard that. We've heard that. But I want to ask you to sit with this heavy question. What, What will God say about you after you're done? Now, before you squirm and run off to the great gospel that says, oh, well, God looks at your life and looks at your life through Jesus and judges you through... And that's all true and that's all good. But that's, that's a little too liberating, a little too quick because sometimes we go to Jesus and we lose the need to control ourselves. We lose the need to remember righteousness has to do with what you think and how you live based upon what you think. And so I want, I want you to sit just, just for a moment and imagine, imagine God judging you. Imagine God sitting like Felix in this text. Uh, and rather than delaying a judgment about your life, what my God began to pronounce. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about God. 
and what God remembers and what God ignores and what God says about us. It is not so much what God will say for the follower of Jesus. It's not so much that because as I've already indicated and some of you already know, God will say about you what Jesus is to you. So when Jesus is your judgment and because Jesus has taken your judgment, there is freedom and there is liberty in that. That is true. It is not so much the issue of what God will say. It is what your heart wants God to say about you because you don't get motivated to live without love and if you don't love God you will always fall back on the lazy excuse of Jesus and never take seriously spiritual growth and transformation and change and justice and doing right with the power you have judgment is waiting for me and for you. And here's the thing now. Now only God knows how to judge like this. God has on the one hand the ability to apply perfection and righteousness that comes through Jesus in grace. And has the ability to remind you what you did with the life you got from Jesus and perfection and grace. So I want to leave you thinking about judgment this morning. And when we finish this passage, we stop at 22. We, <clears throat> we have no idea what's going to happen with Paul. Now, we can read ahead and we can find out and we can see. But, but where we stopped our reading, we don't know what's going to happen with Paul. And so if we are a believing people, we have to be a trusting people. I want you to think about the judgment of God, but I want you to think about the judgment of God, self-control, and righteousness, and a reason to trust in God. If God is going to do anything through you and in your life as an agent of transformation, if God is going to do anything in you to change your interior life, to turn your heart, to change your mind, You're going to have to trust God. So I want you to pray with me. And I want you to pray a song. We're going to sing a song without music. And then our worship team is going to lead us. We're going to have a time of prayer with this one line. I want you to hear it and catch it. It's one line. It moves in three ways, but you'll hear it, okay? If you know it, don't make me sing by myself. It's just, uh, in thee, O Lord, I put my trust. That's the song, okay? Hear this. In thee, O Lord, I put my trust. In thee, O Lord, I put my trust. In thee, O Lord, I put my trust. Sing it when you hear it in thee, O Lord. In thee, O Lord, I put my trust in thee, O Lord. In thee, O Lord, I put my trust in Everybody in the Lord, in the Lord, I put, I put my in the Lord, in the Lord, I put my trust, I put. 
like this, open up your palms and make that your prayer. Say it again. In thee, Make this a prayer. I put my in Come on, say it in the end. Oh, sit just a minute in silence. Sit just a minute. We'll sing it one last time, but sit in a minute. Sit for a minute in silence. Praying about you. Praying about you. Talk to God in silence about you. gospel can be trusted, people of God. The righteousness of Christ can be trusted. What God says about you can be trusted. And so will you ask God, will you ask God in this prayer, in these words, to, to, for you to trust him? Would you sing this one more time? In the parts in new community uh, as you go May your interior life be before God every step you take. And throughout this week, may you live in the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, going where God has called you to go, living the way God has called you to live, and being the men and women that God has called you to be. Have a great week. See you next week, next Sunday. Uh, Please thank in your own way our worship team this morning. God bless you.